All right, so I'm putting this as close as I can to the camera. Maybe I'll have to send Jacob a picture of it. But I was in the store and I found Colin the Caterpillar, mini Colin faces. <laughs> exactly. They misspelled Colin. They did misspell Colin. I have no idea if these taste pretty good, but the ingredients are sugar, cocoa, butter, dried skim milk, butter oil, dried whole milk, co co cocoa mass. Anyway. Fresh from London for the gang. It's like Anybody kids Walker's in? biscuits. Exactly. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Uh, very much. I try. I try. So anyway, one quick story <clears throat> on this weekend, because I think it uh, particularly since what you just went through, Mark, and all. So I'll say this in, in kind of seriousness. We were sitting there at dinner Saturday night. Is this a PSA? Kind of a PSA. Yeah. I was right. sitting there at dinner Saturday night and I asked Where were you? Why you drop some like? We're K2, which is an Indian restaurant in Watford, which is a suburb of, uh, of London. And I asked girlfriend's father, hey, what was the best birthday present you've ever, getting, ever gotten in your life? And uh, it was kind of neat. He smiled and said, seeing my daughter get off the plane yesterday to come have dinner with me. Uh, Very cool. So if you're lucky enough that your parents are still alive, call them. Cause, yeah, I like uh, that. Yeah, no, it really means, means something to them. So. Anyway, Mark, you want to start us off? Where are we going to start? Yeah, I read a little piece on Bloomberg's Daily Energy. Just a you know, just a a thought trigger on kind of what's going on with crude, and just generally, we can talk about the stocks a little bit too. Given really the two major things that have happened, one is obviously what's going on in the Middle East and in Israel, um, and then the big deal announcement last week. Uh, if if you kind of walk this back to similar periods and more distant history, call it 20 years ago, we see this kind of conflict and upheaval. You've got a lot bigger risk premium reflected in crude. And the piece was talking about really things that I think we all see on a daily basis is, well, <clears throat> there's, there's containment um, much more so diplomatically, I think. And I haven't, you know, I haven't read every piece that's come out on on what the uh, um, what was described as the U.S. <clears throat> diplomatic effort in in hyperdrive over the weekend, but also remember that OPEC has taken barrels off the market in its voluntary cut, so we've got a bit more of a spare capacity cushion than we've operated with. And in terms of what you know, what that all means for major supply disruptions of the supply side, restrictions driving crude a lot higher. I think that's mitigated by, you know, something that we have experienced in in increasing volume over the last few months is what's going on with demand. And the IEA was the latest to come out last week and talk about seasonal demand in the US being weaker. And so whether that is part of their narrative around peak demand for the uh, by the end of the decade or there's actually you know, evidence that there, there's a structural problem, then, you know, I, I just think it's interesting that crude, just given the, the headlines and the highlights here, um, is seemingly stuck in the middle. I thought we would see something north of 100, mm -hmm. given the events of last weekend. So so I'll break down that, uh, break that down a little and let's go to the supply side, because we talked um, the conflict in the Middle East last week. And I think our conclusion was, unless we see structural destruction of actual assets mm -hmm. and, and or maybe, I guess we didn't touch on this, but a, 
a blockade of the Straits of Hormel or um, Hormuz. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, we have lunch on Hormel's the brain. Like, I'm got yeah, lunch on the brain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Don't they Chilly. make spam? Sorry, anyway. they do. I'm still on U.S. time, but I did go to London this weekend, so I'm a little hazy. Sorry about that. Uh, aside from from that. We kind of, I think our takeaway was after we saw the Russian embargo, ships can go anywhere they want. It's a function of price for a little bit um, and all that. We haven't seen anything despite the escalation of tensions in the Middle East that have gone to any sort of hinting at destruction of, of assets yet. But you do hear Iran starting to saber rattle and stuff. So, and yeah, you did, you'd have, a, you'd have a, a big single day move on Friday. I think it was four or five yeah. percent. I mean, it, you know, Iran has what two or, or three or four major refineries. If those got hit, that could create. And that, some of the politicians have been asking, you know, some of the politicians on the U.S. side have been saying, hey, why don't we just hit Tehran if Tehran gets involved? That could make a, that could change the risk premium. But at this point, it seems that. There isn't. There's very little risk premium. And I'm wondering if that's just because of w- where the, the location of the conflict being Israel and the Gaza Strip, or is it the fact that times have changed? There's a lot more ability to move supply around the world, which I don't think there is. I mean, I, you know, there's, there's something not really new. However, it'd be interesting to know your thoughts about that. Yeah, I, I, we we've said it's a lot. It's a lot more flexible, I guess worldwide and and we've markets are a lot uh, are a lot more nimble if you will and we have despite the the data issues that we've talked about we have pretty good data relative to 20 or 25 years ago and so i think you know given what what the market did in response to russia's invasion of ukraine you know the headlines in that case at least from a Mm-hmm. A supply standpoint were were a lot uh, more shrill than I think what actually turned out to be a, a fairly good illustration of how the market responds on both the crude and the product side. You know, this is this has got a lot more diplomatic attention and I think focus on containment. Um, the one thing that's in the middle of it that really affects you know the 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 leader of OPEC, which is Saudi, is back and forth headlines over the weekend about the Saudi-Israeli accord, the normalization of relations that yeah, the Biden administration has been working mm-hmm. on for a while. I heard, I didn't see it, that President Biden on 60 Minutes last night said it was still very much on. Mm. So, you know, I guess we'll see. And as Dan Pickering often reminded us, uh, market hates uncertainty. So once we start to get clarity one way or another, <laughs> then we'll get out of this seeming stuck in the middle on the uh, on the commodity. I just thought it was was worth revisiting because we've had a couple of other things and we've had some time to right just some time in a, in a manner of speaking about a week to to see what uh, kind of what next moves are. And I think the big next move at least was reading this morning is you know, Israelis have not started their ground campaign yet in yeah. the Gaza. So, and that's, that's potentially escalation time. It's interesting. Art Berman actually tweeted out this morning and I'm just, I'm sticking with tweeted out. 
yeah. you can't get X'd out. Posted. You can't X'd out. You yeah, can't, you can't, can't X out. You can't do it. So Art actually tweeted Someone out. Someone else owns that already. I think it's owned by Sharpie. Oh, that's true. Yeah. There Someone probably trademarks that Kleenex. You can't say Kleenex unless you're Kleenex. Unless you're Kleenex. Yeah. Coke. All the Crescent yeah. Good wrench. luck, Elon. That's Crescent a big wrench. battle. Yeah, right. exactly. But Art tweeted out that the market clearing price for WTI is $69 a barrel based on uh, comparative inventory data, uh, WTI spot price. So the WTI spot price of 86 was about 17 more than the marginal value of oil for the week ending October 6th. So he's got a chart here that we'll, we'll, we'll put up, but uh, I don't know that I, I, re I understand it, but it's basically, you know, what your comparable inventory was in history versus price. And he's saying the market clearing price is 69. So he's saying we are seeing war premium for that. I don't know that 30 years ago, inventory numbers really matter today to how the world looks, mm. potentially given the amount of oil we have deliverable from US shale. And we all can have our opinions on whether it's deliverable in the short term or the longer term or whatever. But the, the world is a little different. But that's I, the good news is everyone mm -hmm. has an opinion on this and, and no one knows who's right. But we are. So what, it, BD. what explains the you know high 70s to mid 80s that we've seen well prior to, 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 to this series of events that's unfolded literally over the last 10 days? Yeah, they uh, probably need to get Art back on the podcast. You know, I had him on uh, Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I actually enjoyed uh, Great enjoyed, podcast. Enjoyed, uh, enjoyed Art. The, uh, that was when he was Twitter beefing with uh, EFT over something. The, so let's do this as kind of the, the question on this topic. Where do we see oil prices at the end of the year and where do we see them? in the middle of june next year so kirk i'll put you on the hot seat first i mean i think this this these current escalations wars if you will are going to keep oil prices at a premium i just don't see it going away right now so you what are you calling you're calling mid 90s by the end of yeah, the I'm year saying 80s to 100 80 to 100 you know in that range um as we get into the next year it'll be interesting to see um, what's going to happen now you've, you've got dynamics you've got we've said pandemics we've said like what has been moving the needle and what's our been our three big discussion points it's been pandemics wars and then sort of this whole supply this battle with like climate and and sort of the switching the energy transition and what that does to supply or sort of how people look at it um I think as we get into June next year, we're going to continue to see 80s to 100. I don't see a whole lot happening. And, and we have some interesting news that we'll discuss later on in the podcast about why I think that. So I'll save my, you know, come back to me as I will give more details as we talk about a few other interesting stories that are happening this, uh, this week. Mark? I, I, th I tend to think in the very near term between now and the end of the year, we're looking at more of the same mid eighties with, I would guess more upside risk than downside risk. I get a little bit more worried as you know, the inflationary pressures remain pretty high and interest rates have headed the way nobody wants them. If you're a, someone looking for a house or 
uh, trying to refinance something, um, you're, you're not, you're, you're not looking to act as aggressively. So I get a little bit more worried moving into 24, uh, given that it's an election year too. I think we've got, you know, we've got some risk of some, some outside pressure, if you will, to do some things with to lower prices, SPR, sleight of hand, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. Although we don't have the SPR lever anymore. Um, but, but something on the, in, on the political front, I think in terms of really, um, putting some downward pressure on pricing as we move into the kind of the campaign season and, and overdrive next year. Once again, Mark, you have stumbled upon the answer. I agree. I think we may even touch wow. 110 before the end of the year. Because I love how Chuck says the politi- answer is. <laughs> because copper. Of politi- copper. The answer is copper. Be- be- because of the turmoil in the Middle East, we may flirt and may even hit 110 before the end of the year. But middle of next year significantly lower we're we're potentially in the 70s we may even hit the 60s and it's going to be for all the reasons you just said it's an election year if there's anything left in the spr it's coming out we just cut a deal with venezuela that said hey wink wink if you guys will have fair elections then great look at this we'll let you produce more oil we're going to give this we're going to give the farm away to the Iranians and let them produce as much oil as we want. And we're also going to go to the Saudis and give the farm away to the Saudis to get them to produce more oil. Well, let's just like, you know, in in a line from trading spaces, as we are Randolph and Mortimer, why don't we make a dollar bet? One dollar. Why don't we make a dollar bet? The whole thing of Colin (laughs) Minis. On oil price at the end of the year and oil price in June. June June 30th and... June 30th of 24 and December 31st of 2023. And because of DW Insights and the ability to AI search our podcast now. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. We will be able to go back in time and research this. So I will say December 31st, 108.31. And then I will say June 30th, 69.77. I knew you were going to take 69, Chuck. Of course. I'll say December 31st of 23 of 9333. All right. I like specificity. And June 30th of 2024, I'll say 7323. Okay. So I'm going to price is right your asses. So (laughs) anything over means you've lost. Okay, fair enough. So December 31st, I'm going with $90. So anything under 90, I'm I'm in the green. And then by June... I still think it's going to be high. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with $82. Okay. Okay, there you go. We have it. Um Mark, I think you were texting us this weekend that you actually listened to the earnings call of Exxon and Pioneer. Was there anything in there and I'll kind of tee this up with I went and looked at the stock prices. So, if we take Wednesday, October 4th as the kind of pre-announced, what did they call it on the press release the undisturbed price i right. believe stock price exxon was at 111 and 50 cents it's at about 110 as the as of the recording we're doing right now so slightly down the s&p index which i believe i pulled was the xop was actually at 5276 it's now at 5788 so let's call that up almost 10% hmm. over the same period Pioneer straightened at 215 on Wednesday the 4th, 
and is bouncing around at about 249 right now. And that's up 16%. So that's kind of how, how the market has looked at the deal. But we need to go back, speaking of DW Insights, which now they can search using AI, all of our podcasts. Um, we broke this story before anyone else did. So we have to go back to the stock price when, D, when, when BDE broke the story. It, it so, would be like, was that the one we broke a year and a half ago? <laughs> yeah. We broke that in 2017. Wait, wait, wait. It doesn't matter which which episode we broke it. It's yeah. just any episode that goes in our favor, we we'll we'll break that. You know, Mark came in and co-hosted back when Colin and I used to just do this <laughs> podcast like a year and a half ago. We probably broke the story. <laughs> by the way, I got an insider. Dude, tip. I have two new subscribers. By the way, over the weekend I was playing in a golf tournament. They're like, "Oh man, you're on that thing with Chuck," and people are like, "Oh, you're on a podcast. Which is it?" So I got one and a half. I had three subscribers. One dropped. <laughs> and I think the other one was just doing it as a favor. So at least we got two more in the hopper. There so we go. That, I guess that puts us over the million mark or so Perfect. for the first time. I still don't think Laura or uh, the girlfriend's parents have uh, have uh, <laughs> subscribed to the podcast yet, but I was working on it this weekend too. There's some dry humor. They'd like it. There we go. Very short prepared comments in the, um, in the conference call. I think they got to Q&A by five or seven minutes in. I'll have to go back and look. DW Insights, if we have that available, we can there we go. I mean, good point the, the machine call. to give us the right precise cue up to the hundredth of a second. Um, now, I was struck by listening to a super major CEO talk like an ENP CEO, Permian ENP CEO, <laughs> circa 2017, <laughs> or even before that. It was interesting because no decline; it's the future. In the questions that were pointed at the CFO. Kathy Michaels, you know, break down the synergies for us, which I believe are run rate a billion a year in the in the first year to two, ramping to two, and on on a couple of occasions at least a reiteration of a vast majority of those synergies coming in the form of improved well recoveries. In fact, over time, a, a doubling of well recoveries. A lot of uh, discussion about the four mile laterals, right? And so, you know, Woods even got into um, staying in zone with a lot of the drilling techniques that Exxon has has uh, an experience that, that Exxon has developed worldwide, bringing that into the XTO uh, organization. And speaking of a lot of the same potential to combine uh, technical expertise, uh, obviously. Uh, pioneers very deep Permian expertise with with Exxon's both Permian expertise as it more relates in modern days to having now 12, 13 years with XTO, but also importantly, things that they've learned from around the world. And then spent quite a bit of time, at least at a high level, talking about completions and making sure that, you know, the effective stimulated volume and, um, the the flow integrity or the integrity of of production from the heel and the toe. I I just didn't expect there to be that much time spent on citing those those factors, but I guess it makes sense because they are taking on a a, a big fifteen to twenty year inventory in the form of Pioneer. And so, what you know, kind of what's the play here? I was a little surprised to hear um, a doubling of EURs going forward at some point in the future. 
that has to be on an absolute basis. Uh, they didn't qualify it on a per foot or an absolute basis, but I think a lot of that comes out of the the increase out to the four four mile laterals. It was just it was just an unusual juxtaposition, having spent a number of years both covering and investing in public EMPs, and then having did spent they, time in a super major as well. Did they spend much time on ESG type issues and? Because uh, because remember when Chevron bought in the DJ Basin, I forget who they bought. I mean, they literally had dilution, anti-dilution metrics on ESG type variables, and they they spent a little bit of time on it. And you know, I just remembered, um, you know, Exxon. I believe, like Pioneer, I don't know this. I know for a fact that Exxon's uh, committed to net zero on a scope one and scope two basis. And so Darren did. Darren Woods did say that, you know, the combination of the two, you know, will help us in our, in our quest for that, uh, for that objective. There, there was nothing really substantial in terms of, of the sidebar of the tangents and the conversation. It was more about trying to understand really where the synergies of, of a couple of billion are coming from over time. And then, you know, another kind of obvious, but uh, very very lightly touched on uh, subject was the was the issue of headcount, and there was you know fairly explicit comments about this this does not have as we see it a meaningful headcount impact. We're, In terms we're not of reductions. We're looking, I, I guess, as a you know as a long ago former um, heritage Exxon, as we used to say, professional um, seeing. Exxon approached something uh, really from an acceleration standpoint. Acceleration way back in the day used to be a four-letter word, but right. now it's you know it's it's really stepping on the gas because I forget who on on uh, Twitter pointed out that pro forma the combined uh, the pro forma growth rate expected out of the out of the Permian was I believe ten percent a year, and each standalone entity was. Lower than that, I can't can't remember specifically it was, what it was like eight and seven, eight or and seven eight or five and, and a half and eight something. Mark, like are that. they used to count like people per how many barrels per uh, employee? I remember we used to talk about this at Shell. Do you do you recall like what would this do to Exxon sort of barrel per person uh, equivalent? If you could even estimate, if not, we'll bring it back next week and just update. The, our, well, I you know. It, if you're not meaningfully reducing headcount and you're bringing the barrels with the people, then it's not really, I think, going to move the needle that much. Strange. I mean, is, was Pioneer more efficient in the Permian than Exxon? I, I would say – have to be. Yeah. Look, I, I think just generally we've seen where the majors, the super majors that have tried in the Permian in the in the modern context of unconventional over the last dozen years or so – um, are they going to keep Pioneer? So that means two things. One is I acquire a bunch of, of great assets and I throw all my Exxon people at it because we know how to do things better. The other way around is they know how to do things better. Let's not fuck this up. Let's keep them doing what they're doing and, and stay out of it. What's happening? But, it, but it's, also, it's also integrating the two subject matter expertise uh, areas or the areas in which they are expert more quickly than they did with XTO. One of the things that 
I, I think I heard, I'll have to go back and listen to the, that part of the Q&A, was we didn't do that quickly enough in integrating XTO. If you remember, XTO was standalone yeah, in Fort Worth for a long way. time, right, after after what, the deal closed. What I heard would happen is you'd, you'd be the <laughs> banker presenting the data room because this is before it was all online, and the XTO team came in, and there was an Exxon person sitting in the back of the data room that didn't speak the whole time. So it was definitely a, an observer, and the, right. the hands were off on the XTO team. They were allowed to run. I mean, we ball. have half of Pioneer that's going to listen to the show, and they're looking for, what do I do with my career? What What do you say to them at this point? I, You know, I think if, if you want more hum- humidity, you're probably going to be <laughs> relocating a little bit south kind of closer to where i live but um yeah look i think uh i in think it's cartel. A, it is a major leg in this three-legged stool that is now exxon and lng big global projects and then uh, north american unconventional or u.s unconventional primarily the permian it's going to get a tremendous amount of capital and focus and so I think given, you know, the the relative shrinkage and the number of large public company independent choices that you have, hmm. you know, sticking with the assets and, you know, having the kind of having the equity leverage to what you believe to be the best assets out there, if you're a, a technical professional or an operating professional, is probably going to be a pretty good choice. So. Uh, unless unless there's private equity out there seeking the mm. you know 10 to 15 year engineer geologist okay. team that that is looking for for backing but I don't I don't sense that that's going to be and I don't sense as that, much that, the case yeah I, I agree with you I don't think there's that much money and I don't know that the opportunity set is so incredibly different and potentially lucrative over on the private equity side because you're morphing into longer hold periods. And so I think you're talking salaries that are in range with industry average, with stock compensation being your private company instead of Exxon or a pioneer. But if you're private equity, and and there's there's only a handful, I think today even of, of professionals in these public companies on the technical side that have the risk tolerance to do that. Yeah, particularly after what we've been through. Right. See, we but were you, right. But you get to wear the zip-up vest if you're in the private equity side. Yeah. Let, let me let me kind of touch on another point. We talked about it last week with Shell, and I just saw congratulations. By the way, Shell reached an all-time high today in early trading. But you're um, welcome. We talked about you know the 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 growing gap between the the Euro domiciled super majors and the U.S. super majors, and this is obviously a big strategic statement in doubling down on the Permian, literally doubling down or more than doubling down on the Permian for Exxon. What's in, in light of that and, you know, what YL has continued to face in terms of, of pressure, but he's, he is, what did he mm-hmm. say? He's ruthlessly committed to improved returns and financial performance. Correct. Is there another path than, so does this even change his thought process? Is he sitting here staring at this? Any influence? Or I mean, I can't. I can't. Hey, I'm going to be me. I can't disclose any recent conversation. I love that. 
But I can say when I was there, because people know I was there, it's public, so forth. I think Permian was a it was a loss. Couldn't figure out how to make money there. It wasn't like uh, Shell was great. Deep water. We're great at these big things where we make a lot of money. It's hard doing things where we don't make a lot of money per well. Let's make a big investment in a well that's going to produce a lot of a uh, lot of lot of oil. I don't know. Does it make them rethink? Sure. I mean, you always have guys in the back, the FP&A guys that are running spreadsheets saying, we could do this. But when it comes to the operators, I just don't see that they don't have the operational appetite to do it. It's my, in my view. I hope they could buy it. And now that you have fewer options, as we were just However, discussing to go I've elsewhere. a great uh, shell offsite where we had was McKinsey and, or, or I think it was, uh, um, who are the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and they did this analogy. They did all this research that said almost every acquisition is a loss. Like you almost never make your money on any acquisition. So with that said, a lot of management teams make acquisitions because they don't know what to do, and it's a way to you know get guys like us and Wall Street to talk about it. This to me seems like a really good buy, but let's go back in 10 years and say, did they actually, was it accretive or was it actually value destroying? It'll be interesting to see. I, I haven't run this arithmetic. Somebody was, uh, I, I, I guess because it was on Twitter, also known as X, it was a bit of a, uh, a pop-off that they'd paid something on the order of $4.3 million per PXD oh, location. location yeah. yeah, PUD location. Right. Yeah. So, wow. And you meme, can have all my puds for four point three million dollars. Yeah, and the meme was, "Can you can you do that for me, please?" Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, it, that's this kind of competitive response is going to be the more more interesting aspect of of this for me, and you know, we'll see. I know we're always but, talking about industry stuff, but I want to talk as a consumer for a moment. Because I, you know, I converted back from electric to to petrol, as they say over in your neck of the woods this weekend. Is that is that the word that the Norwegians took out of the official name of their energy ministry? I call it gas, and that, then that means a lot of things to to different people. But I am now um, insanely focused on gas prices, and I enjoy it. It's a fun game to figure out because my car eats a lot of gas it eats it it doesn't manage it it just eats it so i'm like where do i get good gas you know i found this great gas station and i've never joined i've never been a member it's called costco yeah and costco is always at least 20 cents cheaper per gallon than anybody else and i have an app that tells me every gas price you know it's kind of fun to do but people stand in line. They'll wait 10 minutes in line just to, you know, I mean, you can be six, seven, 12 cars deep waiting for your gas. But what's interesting is when's the last time you've seen a big line for gas? That's true. There, did, you, uh, did you see a line? There always is a line at Costco That's because people true. are willing to wait for 20 cents a gallon because you know what? Right now, based on inflation, and we talked about this, it's a big deal. So they'd wait for a charger. Oh shit! <laughs> you don't have a choice. In that so matter. it's funny that you should mention that. I was down to Fumes, my son's <laughs> home, for a quick break, and doesn't have his car, so he's driving my truck. But I had to, I had to fill it up on the way over here, which is no short distance. And I started the drive with fifty-one miles of range. 
Shit, dude. So I'd, that's about as that's about as on fumes as I'll let it get. Of course, it, he would have run out. Yours eats gas too. I've seen it. Yeah, thirteen point two. <laughs> it's uh, so it was a hundred and eighteen dollar fill up. I was I stopped at a, a shell. Mm. Thank you. Just off of uh, Kirkendall and, and Grand Thank Parkway, you. and as it was on autofill, I just I was kind of hoping it was one of those stations that was capped at a hundred dollars, yeah. but it kept going. You know, what was so back when I was an investment banker with Stevens, this is before I was at Kane, we would always make the pilgrimage to El Dorado, Arkansas, where Murphy was headquartered yes. back in the day. And right about, so this was, gosh, 25, 25-ish years ago, right? Made the pilgrimage down there, and they had just started, you know, maybe it was a couple years old, mm-hmm. their joint venture with Walmart, where they were putting gasoline yeah. stations. And basically, they laid out, we show up into town, we underprice the market, we run them all out of uh, all the convenience stores out of business, boom, we raise prices. And they were talking, you know, 18-month paybacks on that in terms of, you know, underpricing the market and then superior returns. And it took about 18 months. We could charge a nickel or 10 cents more for the next 18 months, then convenience stores would open back up. And that's just the cycle they played. They had studied it to the nth degree. It was fascinating. It also felt kind of illegal. <laughs> Statute wow, of limitations, dude. I'm sure, is passed on that. But uh, feeling pretty so, about yeah. so I covered Murphy for a while. And it was the first and only time I had to cover anything retail related to an upstream company. I mean, they were primarily right. an upstream company in deep water in Malaysia and the Gulf of Mexico. But learning that over 50% of their retail revenue or profitability came from the sale of cigarettes. Yeah. At, oh, at, yeah, yeah. at Murphy Commun- stations. Gas stations are, I mean, you lose money on the gasoline. You just try to get them into the store, bro. And, and, and another fascinating insight, this was from a long ago consulting project with a company that is no longer with us because they got acquired by BP, Arco, famous for their uh, presence in, in the Los Angeles area. They were cash only up until very recently. And they did twice the volume. This was a project a number of years ago, but they did twice the volume per station of any of their major competitors in the region. And you're you're having to go inside and do a cash transaction. And the transactions are usually for, I think, about half the normal credit card transactions of their competitors. I, I just thought that was fascinating, but it was a price sensitivity in those areas of a few pennies a gallon that would really drive demand. That would actually and matter. so it's, it's a pretty fascinating part Incredible. of the business. So, so one last, one last question on Exxon and Pioneer. I'm going to show this to y'all and we'll get Jacob to edit this in. This is actually the acreage map okay. that they put in, Exxon put in the press release. And as you can tell, green is the Pioneer acreage, red is Exxon. So great fit there. I mean, that's to your point. We can go drill four-mile laterals. I'm sure if we got more granular on it. thing I find very interesting about the Exxon press release, and this is the picture from it, they included all their acreage over here in the Delaware Basin. Doesn't that scream, who are we buying next? <laughs> I mean, aren't they sending the uh, signal? I mean, in sounds all like it. it sounds like it. Basically, tells the other bigs, we're coming to get off, Keep your hands off. 
we're coming to get Concho or whoever. I mean, right? That's the uh, that's uh, not signaling. Con- I don't think bought Concho a oh, while ago. Remember? I meant to say Conoco. Conoco. That I'm just off my game. Sorry, yeah. there. But but they're not Conich Conichco Conichco uh, or Matador or whoever the the case may be. But anyway, that's uh, I thought that was really interesting that they showed that. Maybe they're telling the a, maybe they're telling their competitors back. Well, you, you 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 can't drill four mile laterals with any degree of of scale without a position like that of contiguous yeah. sections. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're talking about I would. You're talking talking about what two thirds of a township. Yeah, no, I mean that's, that's a, a lot. That's a long way. That is a long way. That, that is a long way. I can't run for. It's pretty. Miles. It makes me tired to drive it's that. Pretty far. impressive, exactly. <laughs> All, All right. right, what what happened uh, with the Germans and the French? On well, the I mean, dust they're stuff? going to war, uh, but <laughs> but a different war. Um, interesting story um, this this week about this little town uh, in France. It's right on the Rhine River. It's just right across from Germany. And they have a three-year-old, or they have a, a nuclear power plant that's gone dormant, but they're talking about striking it back up. So there's been this sort of battle between the Germans and the French on what do we do um, in Fessenheim? What do we do with this dormant nuclear power station? And you know, I was trying to come up with an analogy. You know, it's like I always, I always use bad ones. Like you know, it's uh, you know they're playing chess while others are playing checkers, but I was trying to think of analogies, and one analogy I've heard before is you're playing tic-tac-toe while they're while they're solving a Rubik's cube, and that sounds like the guy solving the Rubik's cube is the smarter of the two. However, if you guys remember, you might be too young for this, but I remember. <laughs> Do you remember Joshua? Yeah. Shall we play a, a game? game? How did Joshua learn how to play thermonuclear war? Tic-tac-toe. Tic-tac-toe. It was never a winner. There was never a winner. Good pull. So, uh, and we didn't even plot that. I had no idea you were Dude, I know. I I knew. I was a War Games fan. I thought that. I'm going to go back and watch that. But Joshua learned how to play tic-tac-toe. But what's interesting is French are playing tic-tac-toe. And I'm going to bring in Cutter for a second as well. The French are saying two-thirds of their power is derived from nuclear. And they're thinking about powering it back up because they need that power. At the same time, there's a story about Cutter has, which is also interesting. They've they've um, they're they're seeking buyers for two thirds of their LNG expansion project. So Cutter has recently boosted its, or it's by 2027, it plans to boost its LNG production by 64. percent So. It's interesting. While everyone else is talking climate and the Germans shut out their coal, the French are like, we're going to turn on nuclear. But guess what the French just did? France just did a 27-year deal, Total did, with Qatar for LNG. So France is going long-term. Now, what's interesting is France is looking for low energy prices while Germany is saying, wait a minute, you guys are behind on your commitments to the climate. And so Germans are mad. So who do you think is going to win this war? It's super interesting because there are guys playing tic-tac-toe while others are playing, I don't know what the game is below that, but tic-tac-toe now is the number one game in the world because Joshua played it and we all know it. We all know what Joshua can do. What do you guys think about this? So the two stories are, 
France and Germany fighting over this one nuclear plant, but ultimately France is saying we're doubling down, we're going more nuclear again because it's key, it's it's low cost. And secondly, we're also um, committing almost 30 years to, to buying LNG from a very low producer. And I'd, I'd say, hey, Germany, why don't we look at the trajectory of your emissions? I mean, since they've gotten rid of nuclear, they've turned a lot more coal back online. Absolutely. You know, and so the the thing I still worry about, and we talked about this for over a year, and this is, this is one of those things that uh, could wake you up at night, is just we have a really cold winter. Everybody's pulling on all the electricity to make sure grandmother's warm so that people aren't, uh, aren't suffering. And they make the choice of people comfort over economic activity. And the Germans kind of having what I'll call the most fragile energy ecosystem Absolutely. out there. And they've been very lucky on and weather. They're the, <laughs> and they're the biggest economy in, uh, in Europe. And boom. That's that's the start of the depression or the the recession slash depression that Mark kind of hinted at early because they could lead us into it. And and it seems like history continues to repeat itself. Um, what's interesting is the Germans went anti nuclear in the seventies because there was this whole movement. And it was, then it was one scientist who actually came up with the. <laughs> the waste disposal as the issue. We gave him finger of the week. We'll have to look that up. Let's on go look it DW up. DWN we'll bring it up next. Well, there, but France actually built 56 reactors and leading to two thirds of its power because of the 1973 <laughs> oil crisis. Yeah. So it's interesting that France is thinking long-term. I don't know what the Germans are going to do. Well, the, <clears throat> the Germans are culturally, uh, I think, oriented toward thinking about the highest profile disasters. I, I read something in the article where there's still uh, radioactive uh, contamination in some of the mushrooms and in ultimately the wild boar meat from Chernobyl. You know, in Germany? Yeah, in Germany. And so <clears throat> the, other, the other aspect of this is that's a sensitivity that I think has been used politically. The most recent example of that is a Angela Merkel reversing course and recommitting to the shutdown of the of the nukes, which happened of the German nukes, which happened at the end of March, and we talked about That's that right. as well. And a big influence on her decision to do that was what happened at Fukushima. And I I found an exchange between then President Nicolas Sarkozy, who's on the conservative side, and Merkel. Really asking, you know, why? Um, because she saw that there was a risk of an accident, an outlier risk, but an out, but a risk nonetheless of an accident that could happen in Germany. Uh, she's she was a trained or is a trained physicist, but Sarkozy's retort was, "How can this be?" He, he's talking about this anecdote at a recent parliamentary hearing. Uh, Sarkozy said, "Have you not seen Fukushima?" It was her response. And Sarkozy said to her, but where's the uh, tsunami going to come from in Bavaria? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, interesting as we're seeing the world sort of almost bifurcate on energy policy. And that also is interesting in terms of what's going to happen economically. We haven't seen a very tough winter yet, but we know the Chinese 
our our deep coal. We know the French are going nuclear and and buying long term LNG. Staying nuclear. Staying Let's nuclear. Let's call it that way. Staying yeah. nuclear, the, buying long term LNG. And, and don't forget, Finland just commissioned the biggest uh, nuclear facility in Europe. There you go. Mere months ago. Yeah, and they've committed to LNG. We were talking about the Irish. And the Irish saying no right. to LNG imports. It'll be, I mean, I like if if you're a betting man, bet long term. I'm betting against some of these countries that are going anti. I just don't see. We know renewables can't can't meet demand. We know that's intermittency. It's be interesting as politics is sort of leading policy. Well, and you have two layers here to deal with. You're, you're projecting or trying striving for this unity, right? Right from a policy standpoint across the EU and its member nations, but then you have the on the ground reality of of na national and self interest and political stability, uh, which is fleeting in times of inflation and unreliable power among the electorate. So I think, in in another part of the article, there's there's a I think a conspiracy belief that. Somehow, the French are running a campaign with some of Germany's industrial giants and talking about relocation to France, where oh, clearly be... structurally power is going to be, if we continue down this path, structurally power is going to be theoretically I'd much, be doing much that. cheaper in France. I'd be doing that like a Texas governor going to California. Absolutely. Yeah. You know that's happening. Ab absolutely. The, uh, but but we've spent a lot of time arguing, or they have spent a lot of time arguing over things like taxonomy and what to call stuff and whether it's included in green or not, nuclear being really the, the lightning rod, if you will, of what's in and out of of the the so-called green or renewable EU designation. At, you know, at some point, the physical reality on the ground is going to I think overwhelm all this, and it it really, I think bodes for a lot more political friction within the EU. And you know, do we see another Brexit over time? You know, who knows? But these are the types of of fundamental issues that impact everyday people and the well being of companies. That I think, um, you know, pushing them beyond the tolerance level over a long period of time is going to have some some pretty unfortunate political. Consequences quote, for, quote for Bull Durham. We're dealing with some really serious shit here. <laughs> okay, so this was my favorite. I was at Heathrow and they have the sign up, and I'll get this to Jacob to cut it in. We use local renewable wood chips to heat terminal, terminal two, two, the Queen's, the Queen's terminal. Who gonna tell them? Renewable <laughs> wood chips. Exactly. So they have anyway. a lot of that in the Northeast. Anyway. Well, our Astros are down two to nothing, or down one to nothing, but not worried. Not worried. Um, what did Verlander say? Been there, overcome that. That needs to be a T-shirt. Oh, like that's that. a good one. Particularly if we actually win. So, anyway, folks, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please forward it to a friend. Please subscribe, and we'll catch you next week.